Okay, we're back. Did you miss us? Did you miss us? Because I sure as shit missed us. How was this week for you? Yeah, how you doing? I think we're in, right now, where are we at right now? What's the date that this is coming out? Early Aug. Is it already early Aug? Happy birthday. We already did birthday last night. It's too late. We're done. We're done. Honestly, we're done. Oh my God, Carrie, what a week I had. You know what I was thinking about this week? Hmm. I was thinking, well, you, all week long. All week? All week long. All All week. week. All I'll tell you what I was thinking. Oh, I read something I thought you'd think was cute, which was that um, there is a couple, they have not released their names, um, who have dementia and Alzheimer's, and they successfully... Why is this going to be cute for me? You're going to love it. They're in a, well, they're a couple, and they're in a home together, um, and they figured out the door code of the home and escaped together together in Tennessee um, they were found like a stranger found it's, it's totally fine a stranger found them 30 minutes later and they got returned to the home I just thought it was really interesting because they were like how'd you get out of here and the man was like well I used to work with Morse code in the military and I used that experience to decipher the code that's used on that door. Incredible. And I just focused on it and figured out the code. And then we just left. <laughs> I love that. Do you know what I found out recently? Hmm. I mean, I'm ready. We can talk about that more. Are we done talking about that? The, I, it, anecdotally, I just thought you'd enjoy the story, both because, um, you know, I love puzzle solving and codes, but also um, I like old people that. Uh, I love a Titanic death. I love a notebook death. Spoiler alert, it's on both. But I don't know if I ever told you this story. I was visiting my mom every Christmas Eve. I probably have told this story, so forgive me. But every Christmas Eve, my mom makes me deliver candies to the neighbors. And it's something that she makes me do. And it's fun and sometimes, but it's also like, ugh, I'm 32. Like, can I please stop running errands for you? Like, I want to stay home. Like, I, I don't want to work. Like, I don't want to be an assistant. Can I you work. describe what you mean a little more because I don't know if what I'm oh. picturing is my mom every Christmas it's not in the pandemic obviously but like our little neighborhood we make each other candies for all of our neighbors and you go and you deliver that's them. a lot of trust there oh yeah our neighborhood is like very idyllic we love everybody knows everybody like we all help each other out it's very sweet um no razor blades in those candy apples no my mom makes like homemade almond bark or peppermint bark that's oh her, great that's her vibe Okay. And and you go bring it to each neighbor's house wrapped then, all cutie and you say yeah, like and then they'll Happy give us holidays. Like, Do you carol? No. Uh. But they usually invite me in and like ask me about my life and and it was fun in college but now that I'm an adult it's like yeah, no, I, I live in New York. And they're like, oh, that's amazing. You know, I mean, they're very sweet and there's elderly people. There's like my old piano teacher who they usually give us toffee. There's across the street who gives us sometimes homemade jams. It's like very like there's homemade fudge around the corner. Like, there's really just, like... Fudge around the corner is, is not, not fudge I want to have. Yeah. But it's, <laughs> more, it's like everybody's very sweet. Where and, did you get um, that lemonade? And I get to catch up with some people, which is really actually nice. But one moment that was 
really insane was I was across the street and it was my elderly neighbor. This was a couple of years ago and he had Alzheimer's. He's since passed away and his wife was so lovely and sweet and kind. She was the jam family. She would always make like something like hers was never consistent. She had like new recipes, like a marmalade one year, you know, I mean, it was all very different with her. My mom always, the she liked to mix it up. She liked to mix it up. And I was across the street and she invited me in. So of course we're Midwestern. I say, of course, yes. And you sit down and you have a conversation and her husband. I just want to, for the record, say this, what you're describing is my worst nightmare. Go on. Imagine doing this on Christmas Eve every year. Oh no, I, I wouldn't do it on any day of the year. And it's like, I, my mom gives us gorgeous Christmases. Like she works so hard. So I feel like it's the least I can do for her, but it's getting to be a bit much. Uh, I demand a salary. It's a lot. My mom has since gone, I'll give you a manicure. And so it's like, okay. But I also like love my parents are so generous. So it's like, what do I do? Um, so I go across the street and I was sitting with this family and they had music on in the background and her husband was like bopping to the music. And I talked about learning a new, I written a new script at that time or something. And I was like, oh, I have to go home and learn lines. And he looked at me and he said, how do you do that? I go, huh? He, I go, you mean learn lines? He goes, mm-hmm. I go, you mean remember lines? He goes, yeah, how do you do that? And I said, you know, it's just a muscle. You know, it's like, you just keep trying. And what do you say? Repetition. And then he, and then he goes, why is this happening to me? <gasps> And I, and I just said, you know, time and age, things change, you know, getting older. I didn't know what to say. Oh, bless you, Carrie. That's and hard. I, in, the, in that moment, though, I, I have to say, like, in that, I was really grateful to have that interaction because I'm just so curious about it. And it's such a scary disease and it affects so much of the people around you in such a profound way. Like, I know his wife, obviously, was... I mean, it's horrifying losing someone you love like that. I mean, my grandma has dementia and it's fucking awful. And I, but I, I felt like such a, it was such a privilege to like hear him ask these questions in a way that I thought, wow, like no matter what happens, we're still curious people. And there's still part of him that's in there that wants to know why, you know, like he might not be able to comprehend it, but he's curious still. He's asking questions. That must be so frustrating. And his wife then told me about how they went into the church for that year and they were playing the Messiah, the Alleluia chorus, which mm-hmm. like I sang all every, you know, growing up and, and it's Is customary. Alleluia. Oh my God. When you say hallelujah. that, I'm not kidding. You Do you know the song I pictured, right? Leonard Cohen said, heard there was. Uh, so <laughs> Is that what you did? That's all I picture. <laughs> the David sang. <laughs> Um, and it's customary that you stand up during the Alleluia chorus, right? Are you familiar with that tradition? No. Nope. Where, like, when you play Certainly that song, not. it's like an old thing where you stand up and, and her husband was wheelchair bound at that time. And she said, you know, you wouldn't believe it, Carrie. We went to the church and the Alleluia chorus came on and he's in his wheelchair all the time now. But I've, I've told you, he shot right up and he stood right on up and he, you know, he was really progressed in his Alzheimer's. But there was something in there that, like, that pattern or that memory made him stand up in a way that I... And there's studies that show, like, when you play people music from their youth, it, like, awakens part of their brain. It's so interesting to learn what helps 
people as they're getting older and they're struggling with things like mm-hmm. dementia. One thing I read that's was helping a lot of people in a home was pets. Getting yes. each of them a pet where they had to play caretaker yes. because there's something about everyone around you taking care of you and you not having responsibility that like you said there's a muscle that you're not using or there's a hopelessness probably in abandoning the idea that you would be in charge of something Mm -hmm. and I think the whole deal is they must make sure that the animals eat regardless of whether you forget to feed them but well they have like they're like therapy dogs like they come and they're like but to tell you this is this bird is your responsibility and you take care of it or whatever animal I don't know but um, I it was really helpful helpful for them. This American Life episode I think that like really stayed with me and it was about this woman whose mother was going through late stages of Alzheimer's or dementia mm-hmm. and I know they're different things but I'm not remembering which one is which in this situation and she, her mother moved in with her and her husband. And her husband was an improviser. Mm-hmm. And the worst thing you can do to people with dementia or Alzheimer's is be like, no, you remember. Like, you do that. And, uh, and it's because it uh-huh. causes, like, stress and it's anxiety-inducing and it's all that stuff. And so, sorry, I'm interrupting myself. but So rude. Thank you. What, what I think is so hard is when it's your mother or your parent or your family member that you grew up with, I think you cling to their cling to who they were so much more obviously like even a parent versus a grandchild it's significantly different and so what would happen is is his mother-in-law would start talking and saying things that didn't maybe make sense or that weren't correct and where her daughter's reaction was to correct her mother her son would just yes and it Mm. and would just say, uh-huh, oh, yeah, he was in the Army. Cool. And then this, yeah, he would just... Tell me yes, more about that. Tell me more about that. He would let her mind do whatever it wanted to do, and he wouldn't correct it. He would just stay on the course of what she believed to be true. And I think what was so beautiful is she talked about, her daughter talked about how her mother just fell in love with her son-in-law in Mm -hmm. a way where she felt safe around him and she became dependent on him and where he was and felt comforted by his presence of just allowing her to go. And again, this is a hard, this is not a prescription in any way, but because I, again, I can't imagine what it's like. I feel like you're doing an advertisement for improv. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) But it was about yes anding and not, which I thought was like, Oh my God. So we're trying to teach Ozzy and Koa. Yes, anding. For dear readers that don't know, my son Koa is uh, three and a half and his best friend Ozzy lives across the street. And when we play with them, they get in fights where it's like we're playing make-believe and they're like, no, we're not on the moon. And you're you're like, you guys, this is going to be really fun if we can figure out how to yes and it. So we were practicing in the yard the other day and it's like Ozzy would be like, I'd say, we're at the circus. And Ozzy would go, yes, and we're going to eat popcorn. And then Ozzy's mom would say, yes, and the popcorn is very salty, so we should all go get a snow cone. And Koa would go, it'd be Koa's turn, and he'd go, no, 
I don't know. What are you guys talking about? (laughs) Then we'd start over. And every time it got to Koa, he'd be like, absolutely not. And he'd shoot (laughs) down whatever the idea was. He's advanced. And I was like, but so what, what I've realized is Koa likes to have uh, two books at night and two songs. And he's gotten into this new thing where he only wants a song he's never heard before. It's a very tall order when you sing two a night. So what that's grown into is Matt and I now make up songs and they're terrible. Some of them, some of them surprise you. I, you know, I've had a couple of times I've really surprised myself and been you like, good at it. was you... anyone else in here to hear this? This was really something. And I don't think I'm ever going to find it again. Um, but I'll finish and Kobo loves it so much. He'll go, mama, mama, will you sing more songs? I'll say, no, we already sang two. And he'll say, Okay, well, I want to sing one. And I'm like, very well. Mama, I don't have all the words. My words are too simple, so I need your help. He's very sneaky. I love it. So (laughs) what we agree on is that we end up doing a thing where I sing a sentence or two, and then I stop, and Koa has to sing the next couple, and then I sing, and it's turned into a total improv thing where we create some sort of story together and it's can you record pretty it? delightful i'd love to record it um i'll have to get his permission of course i don't want him to take me to court later but it's uh and cop we have to copyright anything i put on the podcast because the stuff we're coming up it's with is but you know i'm not trying to brag but it's i am it's certainly never been done before Last night's story was about um, an angry bear that decided he liked eating shoes. Um, Oh, interesting. Progressive stuff. Cole also asked that the songs, he's like me, so he's like, can the songs be a little bit scary, Mama? He likes that feeling of coziness of scared. Sing a song about a zombie, Mama. Sing a song about a vampire, Mama. A vampire. Yeah, that's how he says it. A vampire. I mean... Pretty, pretty cute stuff. It's really cute. Who's first today? Me. I hate it when you say that. By the way, you're listening to Truly. Darkly. Creeply. I'm Quinlan Posner, and I'm Quinlan Posner. And, and I'm, I'm Carrie Ivema. Posner. Stop taking it all for yourself. Selfish. I know that's a callback to what happened last time. Indeed. I got all this information from Wikipedia. Let's just say it, what it is. It was all Wikipedia. It It was a long fucking Wikipedia article. But also I got some information from All That's Interesting, and then it was the same information in the Wikipedia article, and I'm not interested in cross-checking. That's not my job. It is, but I didn't want it to be last night. You're quitting. I quit. I'm doing the story of Peter Kirten. Kirten? Kirten. It's a U with an umlaut. Oh, okay. Wouldn't that be Kirten? Uh, really? I'm the guy you're going to ask? Kirten or Kirten? Peter Quirton. Listen, spoiler alert, this guy sucks. Dang it. My guy sucks today, too. All right, that's the theme. We go double, double, People dark, dark. People suck. Double, double, this, this, double, double, dark, dark. Double, this. Double, dark, double, double, dark, dark. Double, double, dark, dark. We're doing a hand jive, folks. The thing is, is when they're really dark, at least it happened in 1883, so it's a while ago. Mine's not. Okay. Great. Y'all. I'll take it. This is a dark one. Okay. He, Peter, oldest of 13 kids. I said he's a bad guy. Guess what? He had a horrible upbringing. Are we surprised? No. Um, 
all of them lived in a one-bedroom apartment in Germany, somewhere in Germany. You don't need to know. Do you need to know? No. no. The thing is, you could say literally any city. A lot city. of it is like Dusseldorf. A lot of it, it's like we don't need to know. It was a horribly abusive family. They lived in a one-bedroom apartment. Both parents, alcoholics. Um, his father would beat his mother in front of all of the kids. He would beat the kids. Peter was the oldest, so he got like a huge part. He got a, like a, a big brunt of the abusive situation. When his dad was really fucking drunk, he would line all the kids up and order his wife to strip naked, and then he would rape her. In front of the kids? In front of the children. What is wrong with people? What the actual fuck? His dad also raped his eldest daughter. This guy he got 18 months in jail. Not fucking enough. When his dad got out, his mom got a separation order from their father. However, I think a couple years later, they got remarried. It's unclear if they got remarried or if she got remarried to someone else, but let's just say the abuse just continues. At five years old, Peter is obviously affected by this. How could you not be? At five years old, he tries to drown one of his friends. (gasps) At nine years... He's five? He's five years old. And he tries to drown his friend? Yeah. Fuck. Fuck. This kid must be so sad. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But he's a bad guy. Well, yeah. It's like we're starting. It started young. At nine years old, he befriends a local animal catcher. Guess what? The animal catcher would like torture, kill, maim these animals, and so Peter just fucking jumps right on in, joins the crowd. So we have a kid who comes from a horribly abusive background, and now he's abusing and torturing animals. We all know where this is headed. I think there's an accusation at nine years old that he's swimming with two friends of his. One of them is holding on to a log for balance, for floating. He knows the kid can't swim. He pushes that kid off the log. While the kid is drowning, another kid goes and tries to help that kid. What does Peter do? He holds his head underwater. The kid is trying to save the other kid until both of them are dead. <gasps> He's nine? Nine years old. Oh, no. Both boys die. It's ruled as an accidental death, so it's not. What? Um, it's not. I guess proven. they didn't know what to do with that. They were like, it's "You're not proven. Nine. It's not proven. Like it's just like hearsay. Hearsay. He didn't do well in school. I think he was a talented student, um, but oftentimes his schoolwork suffered. He refused to come home. He would run away for days to weeks at a time, obviously, just to get the fuck away from that home life. He made friends with criminals at the time, and so he would do petty thought crimes like you know, theft or robbery or stealing. All of those feel like synonyms that I just named, but he would just go to... <laughs> You're like... <laughs> he stole, he at thefted, a dictionary. he robbed, he burgled, he uh, took things that weren't his. He uh, just nabbed <laughs> stuff that wasn't belonging to him. Snip. He took other people's property. Yeah. He uh, Swiped. Swiped. And so, just to survive on them streets... And at 13, he starts a relationship with a girl her his own age. And although they would, like, kiss and fondle each other, she didn't want to have sex with him. So what he would do to relieve himself is he would have sex with animals. Okay. Um, she I don't know that we've ever pigs. had uh, bestiality on this podcast yet. Here we are, time? episode, like, 85 or 6. I can't imagine that this is the first like... time. Maybe it is. 
I can't think of another time we've mentioned it. So. And away we go. And what he would do is before he would finish, he would stab the animals. Mm. And this is at the time where his relationship with sex and blood intertwined. He had a sexual, he became hypersexualized to violence and blood. Not good. Yeah, I'm pretty disappointed this is where we've ended up already. Yeah, and it's worth the beginning. I think we're like four minutes in. This is the beginning. This ain't, uh, this is page one. You know what I mean? This is... See some of you readers next week. <laughs> we'll see ya. Love you guys. Love you guys. Honestly, uh, I'm, I'm just going to say the name of this guy because I can just say later, he was the vampire of Dusseldorf is what they call him. So like... You know Probably it's not going to get better. He's the most, I just feel like a, he's a heinous serial killer, and if that's not your vibe, fucking fast forward. You know? Well, I would quit while you're ahead, because mine's not going to get good. brighter okay. or sunnier. Yeah, you know what? We had, like, a really nice touching beginning, and we talked about how Kos has one fire, and so this one's the vampire. Just, it's not good. So, please, cut and run. We're not offended. Get out of here. We love you. We'll see you next week. Tries to rape his sister. In 1897, he's 14. He leaves school. His dad's like, you got to get a job. He becomes a molder. And he was there for two years, seemingly like not doing crazy shit, until he stole all of his father's money and all the money from the place, and he left. He ran away. He went somewhere. He had a relationship with a sex worker who they spell out as like two years older, which let's be honest, that's the same age, whatever, 14 to 16. And apparently she did whatever he wanted her to do. You know, some strangulation stuff. Four weeks later, after he had moved, he was arrested for the theft, and he was sentenced to one month in prison. Every time this guy gets in prison, I'm like, I can, like, breathe a little easier. But it's just one month. Mm -hmm. And in 1899, he gets back out, and guess what? Goes right back to stealing. At this time, he claims he uh, ran into this 18-year-old woman, he rapes her, he strangles her, and she was left unconscious, and he left. There is no report of this, so hopefully that means this person got up and left and maybe didn't report it. Probably that's not what it means. I'm hoping. Let's just hope. I think we could use as much hope in this story as possible. He was arrested for fraud and was charged with attempted murder of another girl with a gun, and he was sentenced to serve four years. To serve four years. Phew, we got four years of break. Oh, I needed a break from we this We needed guy. a break. Four years. He was in jail for four years. Everybody moved to a different city. I hear Paris is lovely this time of year. <laughs> Truly. 1904. He's drafted into the army. He goes, for some reason, he's deployed, and he's like, I don't like this killing when it's somebody else telling me what to do. So he deserts. He runs away. Um, and in the fall, he gets really mad at society, and he decides, you know what? I liked raping blood. I'm going to add fire to the list. So he becomes an arsonist. He would light up buildings, haylofts, and barns and he would light them on fire and then he'd wait until the emergency people came in and he would watch while they would try to put it out and it would arouse him. Um, And he would arouse him hoping that people would be burned alive. He started 24 fires in 1904 before New Year's Eve. Jeez, that's a full-time job. Because he had deserted the army, 
the fires, more robberies. He went back to prison from 1905 to 1913. I want to be very clear. He gets out of prison one year back in. What, like all of it, he's in and out, in and out, revolving guy. door of prison. So because he wasn't great with authority and would challenge it, he spent a lot of his time in solitary confinement. And at mm-hmm. this time, what he talked about is he would have fantasies of sexual sex and violence and also then became obsessed with punishing all of society. Um, and he wanted to punish as many people as humanly possible. And he said that he had such pleasure about hurting people and um, that he said it was like what other people think about naked women. He talks about just violence arousing him like it would other people. That's not what I wanted to say, but he thought about he was a bad guy. Okay, so he gets out of jail in 1913. (laughs) He goes back to the life of crime, stealing, and what he would do is he was like robbing inns and taverns where like the people lived on the first floor. He just like was robbing. May 25th, 1913, he's robbing tavern. He comes upon a nine-year-old girl. Her name is Christine Klein. She's asleep. He strangles her. He cuts her throat. This is very gruesome, and I am trying to put this as delicately as I can because it's very horrifying, but he was called the Vampire of Dusseldorf because when the, the sound of the blood hitting the floor is when he would climax. And there was a huge connection between his arousal and the blood from his victims. The next day he came back and he sat across from that tavern and listened to like the disgust and the outrage of the people that found out what happened to this poor sweet little girl. Like he went back the next day. It's like they often do. They right? often do. And his it's like feels so fucking textbook and he became he becomes so obsessed with this idea of violence that he would visit this little girl's grave and he would become aroused when he would touch the soil. Oh, grody. Do we cut that? No, I mean we it it's this is the story. That was a If day. we cut everything that was upsetting about this story, I don't think we'll have much left. So I think we got to uh we got to just get on with it. This guy's a piece of shit. In July of that year, a couple months later, he's on another he's on another burglary. He takes the opportunity. He sees 17-year-old Gertrude Franken. She's asleep. He strangles her. He climaxes. He leaves. She survives. <gasps> she survives? She survives. Oh, good. Then, July 14th, He's arrested for arson and burglaries, and because of those, he gets six years in jail. But he's not connected to the murder of the little girl or the attempted murder of Gertrude Franken. That's so weird. I guess they don't know he's the one doing that stuff. Totally. Okay, okay. They think it's unrelated. Exactly. Or they they think they were already on him for arson, and I think probably this 17-year-old, she was, like, asleep, or, you know, she couldn't give um, a description, or, you know, they don't really know his M.O. yet. Because he was so awful, that six years turned into two additional years because he just was an awful human. Mm-hmm. So he's in solitary again. Um, and he uses that time, and sometimes he justifies going back to solitary just so he can have these horrifying fantasies and live in this, like, violent sexual world that he's in. 
Whoa. Um, he's released in April 1921. He moves in with his sister, one of his sisters, right? He's one of 13. Two of the kids died in childbirth, by the way. I don't think that's totally important to the story, but he moves in with one of his sisters and he meets this woman, Augusta Scarf. She's a former sex worker and she owns a sweet shop and he introduces himself as a POW, as a prisoner of war. Two years later, they get married that he admits that they had sexual relations and when he when he finishes with her, when he climaxes with her, he has to fantasize about violence against other people in order to get there. And he ends up only having sex with her at her invitation. So this is interesting in that his marriage with Augusta, it's not an aggressively violent relationship, which I think is interesting. It always is interesting when killers can do that. They can like... I compartmentalize yeah and be like this is my family that i have exactly and here's my hobby which is murder which is murder and just treating people fucking horribly um he gets i just would love to suggest bowling (laughs) if i could just actually make if there's a suggestion box for any out there like bowling basket making golf Oh, golf is fun. You get to hit stuff, which sounds like it might be up some of yeah, your alleys. like, you know, get that aggression out of there, you know? <sighs> Playing with tiny balls seems like kind of a, there's a trajectory there, you know? He gets a job. In 1925, so they get married in 1923. In 1925, he starts having, quote, affairs. I use this term lightly, or loosely, rather. I use the word affairs loosely because... I just don't think these were, like, the best relationships. In fact, one was with a servant named Tita, and another was a housemaid named Mech. Mech? I don't know. I'm not German. I do have it in my ancestry, so I do claim to be, but I do not know the German language. So we have Tita and Mech. He would have sex with them. I'm going to say he would rape them. He would rape them. He would strangle them and, like, have pretty forceful... He would choke them. Yeah. Is strangle choked? Oh, I don't know, actually. When you say strangle, it makes it sound... Well, what's here's the thing is, here's the thing. He had a, quote, affair with them. When his wife found out, Tita accused him of seducing her, which is a crime for a man to seduce a woman. Things didn't I did know not that. know. And um, Mech uh, said she raped him. I'm inclined to said believe... Said he raped her. Yeah, sorry. Said he raped her. And Mech said that he raped her. Oh, definitely. So I'm inclined to believe both parties. Of course, (laughs) of course, in the, it's 1920, we're in the past, it's the same as now. You know, of course. (laughs) They they don't believe them. They don't believe, well, they drop, no, they actually believe Tida, or they drop the larger, they drop the larger charge of rape. And so they charge him with seducing a woman. So he gets eight months in jail for seducing. For being a cad. For being a seductress. Seducer. Um, He gets out at six months if he agrees to move out of that town. He agrees to move out of the town. He gets six months. He then appeals that decision and moves back into the same fucking town. Oh, they're bummed. They're super bummed. So it's uh, 1929. Now, 1929 was a year. It's not good out there. It's really not good. It's really, really bad. Paint a picture. All I can do is I can tell you what I know. And what I know is this. February 3rd, 1929. 
Peter Kirtan, he finds an elderly woman named Apollonia Kuhn. He's waiting until he had coverage by a bush. He grabs her, he stabs her 24 times with scissors. The cuts were so deep it hit bone. She survives. She's an elderly woman. February 8th, 1929, five days later, he finds nine-year-old Rose Olinger. He strangles her before he stabs her in the stomach, temple, genitals, and heart. He climaxes, and then he stages it to look like a rape so that it can confuse police about motive. Because okay. Apollonia, the previous victim, no sexual assault, although all of these are sexual in nature because of his arousal by blood and violence. All of them are sexual in nature, but not all of them are rapes or penetrative sex. I understand. Penetrative. Okay. So are you saying, though, that after he killed her, he got busy with her? He didn't get busy. He put some of this stuff in her to make it look like it was sexual. Okay. I guess I asked the question and the question deserved an answer, and now I'm sad I have the answer. Let's totally. move on. Um, he hides her body in a hedge. He lights it on fire. He becomes more aroused. Five days after that, February 13th, he murders 45-year-old mechanic male Rudolf Scheer. He stabs him 20 times. When the police finds his body, Kirtan even came back and was like, oh, I heard about this murder. Someone called me about it. He's revisiting all the fucking scenes of the crime. All three of them were different victims, right? There's like one man, two women, old, young, all over the map, age-wise. However, there was no robbery and they were all stabbing. So the authorities were like, you know what? We think it's still the same fucking guy. Between March and July, Kirtan claims he strangled four more women in that time. Although there's no evidence, there's no reports of that. But that's not to say that didn't happen. Because obviously I think women have always had an issue reporting. Because they're not believed. We get into August 8th, 1929. He meets Maria Hahn, a young girl looking for marriage is what he refers to her as. He asks her out to dinner, and on August 11th... Say no! She goes to dinner. He rapes her, strangles her, and stabs her. Because he had blood on his body, and he was supposed to go home, he needed to hide her body so that his wife wouldn't connect it. Yes, because he has a wife this whole time. His wife won't connect the bloodstains with the murder of Maria Maria Hahn. She'll just be like, looks like you got a lot of blood on you while you were out? Totally, or he, I don't know, well, he hides her in a cornfield. He keeps returning and trying to, like, change the grave or something, but he wants to go back and do a mock crucifixion with her body, but her body's too heavy to raise up and to, just for spectacle, for, like... For his own sense of, like... Power and fucking with society. As I said earlier, the guy wanted to fuck with society, although... It's kind of conflicting because it's like, you're just doing this to get off. Let's fucking be honest here. Right. So he couldn't figure out how to manipulate the body because her body was so heavy. So he ended up writing a letter, an anonymous letter to the police with a map of where her remains were. And the police find the body. He then changes murder weapon or weapon of choice from scissors to a knife. And again, this was trying to convince the authorities that there were two people doing these crimes at least yeah so on august 21st in one day he attacks an 18 year old woman a 30 year old man and a 37 year old woman again the demographics are all over the place all three survived but they said the person who attacked him did not say a word all they could say were like i guess he's in his 40s 
So three days later, he comes upon two foster sisters. They're five and 14 years old. He asks the older, Louisa Lenson, to go buy him cigarettes and she can make some money by buying him cigarettes, like 20 cents. While she's gone, he takes the younger child, Gertrude Hamaker, and he strangles her and cuts her throat. When Louise returns, he strangles her, cuts her throat, and sucks blood from her wounds. There is no sexual assault on either of these two girls' bodies. The next day, Gertrude Schultz, 27 years old, he asks her to have sex. She says no. He screams, well, die then. He stabs her in the head, back, neck, and shoulder. She survives. The only thing she can say is, he's around 40. Why is everyone just aging him and nothing else? They don't know height or anything? He's pretty normal, not normal looking. He looks so fucking scary. He does also have a Hitler mustache, which again, just proves our point. If you're looking for fashion advice from Hitler. He's a white German guy, you know? I mean, I think there's a lot of them there. Sporting that stash? I don't know. He has two other attempted murders, strangled, stabbings. September 30th, he meets 31-year-old servant Ida Reuters. She's asked to go to a cafe and on a walk with him. Mm -hmm. She goes, and at this point, he's changed his weapon again. From a knife to a hammer. He hits her in the head with a hammer. He rapes her. She's dead. October 11th, he meets 22-year-old servant Elizabeth Dorier. Same story as before. Will you go on a walk? Will you go to the cafe with me? She says yes. She's found alive the next day after she was hit with a hammer and raped. However, she never woke up from her coma. Ugh. She died. October 25th, he attacked two more women with a hammer. Both survived. The second one only survived because when he went to strike her with the hammer, the hammer fucking broke. Oh, wow. November 7th, 1929, he kills five-year-old Gertrude Alberman. She's strangled and stabbed. I just want to say, this is the last of his murders. I think it's okay to do a spoiler. This is his last victim. Yeah. Although, not the last victim, it's the last fatal victim. Around this time, a letter was sent to the police, and they're able to say to locate another one of his murders, and they're able to compare the two letters, the one from uh, Maria Hahn and this one, and they're saying, oh, it's the same guy. We're looking for one guy. Also, during 1929, as I spoiled before, they've dubbed this guy the vampire of Dusseldorf, also the monster of Dusseldorf. He created fear all throughout this fucking town. Nobody was safe. It was mostly women who were affected, who were killed, but men were attacked too, no question. He became known nationally and internationally. There was a reward for his for his discovery, but the police have no idea. Right. It's so weird, just to interject, it's just so weird to me that we, like that Jack the Ripper is such a household name. It sounds like this guy killed way, way more, more people and kids to boot. And well, it's I just odd it's to me that... Because we know who it is. Oh, that's the difference. That's the difference. It's not mystery. We know who this guy was. Okay, okay. He was such a household name that the police received more than 13,000 letters. Mm-hmm. All of the tips were pursued and investigated. 9,000 people were interviewed. 2,650 clues were investigated. 
there were 900,000 names of suspects on a list. Holy shit. So they were like, it could be anybody. It could be literally your next door neighbor. In 1930, he keeps on maiming and attacking. He has a total of 10 victims, including in May 1930, 20-year-old Maria Budlick. She was walking home from a train station. And she was looking for jobs and a place to stay. And a man approaches her. And he's like, do you need help? And she's like, yeah. He goes, let me show you to the nearest hostel. Mm -hmm. He starts leading her to a wooded area. And she's like, no, 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 I'm not fucking going there. They get in a fight. They get in a disagreement, an argument. Another guy comes over and is like, are you okay? She's like, yeah, this guy is, the other guy just walks away. Yeah. Right? The new guy comes up and he's like, what do you need? Do you need help? And she's like, yes, I'm going to go to a hostel. I need some help. The guy that interjected that she then went with, (gasps) Peter Kirtan. No, no. Who was the first guy? Another fucking creep. Wow. We got to be careful out there. We so gotta trust like, our blink, and like then we this, gotta trust uh, someone else's blink, the, and then we gotta find to save us, some extra blink. It just means they're just blink. calling dibs on us. It's not even that they're trying to help us; they're trying to take us for their own. So he goes and he's leading her to a hotel, and she, because her blink is strong, she was like, "Oh, I know what this guy fucking wants from me." He invited her over to his apartment to eat and drink, and she was like, "You know what? I'm not interested in having sex. No." He said, fine. He leads her to the hotel, but instead leads her down into the woods where he tries to strangle and rape her. Why the fuck is she going into the She didn't the mean woods? to. She didn't mean to. All right. All right. She said, no, I don't want sex. He's like, okay, let me lead you to a hotel. I think by the time she like turned a corner, she was like, ah, I don't know. He attacks her. She's like, I don't know where you live. Like, just let me go. Let me go. She screams. He lets go of her throat. She fucking books it, runs away. Obviously, she doesn't go to the police. No one's fucking believing women. So she writes a letter to her best friend, and she's like, you'll never guess what fucking happened. This happened, this happened, this happened. Because she misaddressed this fucking envelope, it goes to the post office. They open up the letter, and they go, whoa, this is some serious shit. They hand it over to the police officers. The police go, wait, this sounds like the vampire of Dusseldorf, and she got away. Let's find her and interview her. And what does she say? He's about 40? She's about 40. And what she had said was, she goes, I told them I didn't know where he lived. But I do. But I fucking do. And I will lead you to his house. Nice. Go, Maria, go. So she leads the police over to his house. They're walking and there's two investigators going to search the place. Peter walks in and sees them searching the place. Fucking moonwalks away. Jets it gets the fuck out of there. <laughs> Right, that's an image. Go ahead. He moonwalks away because he's the vampire. He's the vampire of Dusseldorf. He yep. just fucking glides. He's like, I'm out of here. Get back in my coffin. And <laughs> gotta fucking go. So, the police obviously go to the house. The landlady confirms Peter Curtin. Curtin is the place. Is the guy. So they know he has him. He knows they have him. He finds a way to tell his wife. He's like, listen, this woman, Maria Budlick, I want to make sure. Yeah, Maria Budlick. I just want to make sure Maria Budlick, I I did attack her. And because of my previous crimes, I'm going to get 15 years in like a crazy work colony. 
So, like, I need to, like, lie low. And his wife was like, okay, go, go, go. Thinking that it was this one crime that he did and that because of all of his priors, that's why he would get punished. Mm -hmm. So he, like, goes into another place with his wife's blessing, spends a couple weeks there, then comes back to his wife and is like, listen. So I'm the vampire of Dusseldorf. (laughs) However, I'm telling you this confession because I want you to go to the police so that you get the reward money. Okay. So How did, I don't. Mm, all right. That's okay. his sneaky way of being like, I gotta set you up. I'm about to fucking die. <sighs> okay. I don't know if the police are gonna take kindly to that, but go on. So Augusta goes to the police the next day, and she's like, "Listen, I've been living with the fucking vampire of Dusseldorf. He confessed to me of all his crimes, and he will confess to you tomorrow." Here's where we meet him in Tomorrow. front of a church. Okay. They meet him in front of a church. He's brought in with guns blazing. They've caught the guy. Initially, he admits to all of it. 68 crimes, including nine murders, 31 attempted murders. He justifies his crimes based on his horrible upbringing in life. He claims he's never tortured the young victims. He just wanted to see blood. He said he, it is said he had drunk the blood from a couple of his victims. At one point he drank so much, I think from Maria Maria Hahn, that he ended up throwing up. He drank too much blood. That's fucking vile. I'm so sorry to tell you that. So sorry to hear it. Before his trial, he's interviewed by the psychologist, Dr. Carl Berg. The primary motive of all of these attacks were sexual. The majority of them were committed while his wife was working at night. The stabbings were in relation to his climax, which is to say why some women got away with less violence was because he climaxed earlier. Right. And so was able to leave. But also then at these interviews, he was like, I also wanted to punish society for all it did to me. Well, you... You can do both. You can be an asshole and try to do it. Either way, none of it's right. You should get punished. You should die. They determined he is not insane and he's fully able to control his actions and understood that he was committing crimes so much so. And some of the proof was that he would start attacking someone. And then when somebody was around him, he would like run away. Like he knew it was wrong and he knew that he would get busted. He had enough awareness to stop himself in Mm -hmm. case he was going to get caught. He wasn't caught up in frenzy. Mm -hmm. So he was declared legally sane and competent to stand trial. On April 13th, 1931, he was on trial for nine counts of murder, seven counts of attempted murder. Yes, seven out of 31, but I assume a lot of it needed evidence and also a lot of it needed evidence and also just a victim to make a charge. He pleads not guilty by reason of insanity. At the trial, he was put in a special cage that was a shoulder length iron cage like that went all the way up to his shoulders, his feet were shackled, and it was to protect him from attacks from the relatives in the court. It was for his own protection. I just like imagine he's fucking Hannibal Lecter. Like totally. in this fucking like iron lung sort of contraption where he's just like Because people would have torn him apart, right? I don't blame him. I want to tear this guy fucking apart. Completely. He claimed initially that his confession was only so that his wife could get money. Oh, stop. But then a couple of days in, he changed his plea to guilty and expressed 
absolutely no remorse. This is what he said when he was asked if he had any feelings or like a shame of what he did. Do you have any feelings? Do you have any feelings? What's your deal? When he asked if he had any remorse, he said, when he asked if, when he was asked if he had any remorse, he said, I have none. Never have I felt any misgiving in my soul. Never did I think to myself that what I did was bad, even though human society condemns it. My blood and the blood of my victims must be on the heads of my torturers. The punishments I have suffered have destroyed all my feelings as a human being. That is why I had no pity for my victims. What a drag. Before the trial, they did talk about some of the murders that he talked about with the psychiatrist or psychologist, Dr. Carl Berg. And some of the things he was saying was blatantly flaw, false, or embellished, and they just chalk that up to his narcissistic personality, that he yeah. would embellish. I mean, and that made sense to me. The trial lasts 10 days. It takes the jury under two hours to condemn him as guilty and sentence him to death. He did not show any emotion. He did not appeal. He only submitted a petition um, to a known, for a pardon to a known opponent of the death penalty in the hopes that some, he would like appeal to the guy's yeah. belief system. That was denied. He saw a confessor right before, and he wrote letters of apologies to the families of the victims and a farewell to his wife. July 1st, 1931, he has a wiener schnitzel, a bottle of white wine, some fried potatoes. He asks for seconds. He gets them. They shouldn't have given him fucking seconds. That makes you mad. That makes me mad. He didn't need seconds. He didn't need seconds. None of his victims had were had any sort of... They didn't get seconds. They didn't get anything. They didn't get anything out of you. They got pain and death. 6 a.m., July 2nd. He's 49 years old. He's brought to the guillotine. He's flaked by a psychiatrist and I think a guard and the executioner. He turns to the psychiatrists and he says, Tell me, after my head is chopped off, will I still be able to hear, at least for a moment, the sound of my own blood gushing from the stump of my neck? That would be the pleasure to end all pleasures. Get this guy out of here. When asked whether he had any last words, he just smiled and he said, No. He was executed by the fucking guillotine. His head was then dissected, mummified, and studied by forensic analysts. Weird. Did they learn anything from it, I wonder? His whole body was studied. There was no abnormalities. He had like an inflamed thyroid. Well, like, that's what I would picture. Exactly. It's, it's all like he's, his brain, there was no abnormalities. His body was fucking I think fucking we all want, we want to be like, it. there was this piece of his brain that was totally, we obviously wanted, broken and we black. We wanted like the Grey's Anatomy. He had a tumor, which made him do it. Instead of a frontal lobe, he had a tarantula. <laughs> Covered in <laughs> skull tattoos. Right? Like, he had a tarantula controlling how he treated people. <laughs> nope. Sorry, folks. Zero. He had a bat up there. There'd be monsters. There'd be real-life monsters. The interviews of him before he went to trial formed the book by Dr. Carl Berg, The Sadist. And it was, like, one of the first interviews mm-hmm. with a sexual predator. After World War II, his head was transported to the U.S. of A., and it currently lives at the Museum of Ripley's, believe it or not, in the Wisconsin Dells, Wisconsin. 
queer. You can visit his head in fucking Wisconsin. Well, I'll pass. I don't want it. Pass. Peter Curtin, the vampire of Dusseldorf. Thanks for telling. I'm not going to thank you. Don't. I don't expect a thank you. That. That was hard. That was hard. That sucked. That sucked. And you know what? He just was a monster. Like, he truly was. There's no rhyme or reason. There's no justification for anything. Like, I understand he had a hard life. Do you know how many people have hard lives and get out of it? Not. And don't kill. Well, that's interesting. It's. You're absolutely right. But do you know how many people have hard lives and go on to be damaged yeah. crazy people that hurt others lots so many so it's um i'm not trying to have a nature nurture conversation because for some reason i don't think you and i are the people to solve really? that one i think we could do it we're just we're mere dentists carrie why would we think we could do that um <laughs> but it's interesting you chose to tell that story my story is uh in, would fall in the same Venn diagram as yours yeah. somehow. There's some overlap. Let's do it. I got my info from uh, Mamma Mia, Boston 25 News, Parkaman.com, Boston Magazine, Wikipedia, Lowell Sun, Talk Murder With Me blog. Are you and... doing the Boston Strangler? Nope. Oh. And JoeTurnerBooks.com. Joe Turner is a man that is writing a book on this. Maybe he's already written a book on this. He knows a lot about this. He's a big help. Thanks, um, Joe. Danny LaPlante is who I'm doing today. Do you know him? Yes. How do I know that guy? I don't know. I think he's on my list. Take him off. Danny LaPlante grew up in Townsend, Massachusetts. He lives with his mom and stepfather, Elaine and David Moore. He lives with two brothers. His stepfather and his biological father both happen to be shitbags. Mom has a type, I guess, and they physically sexually, mentally, abuse him. Uh, Shitty, shitty thing. We all know it's going to get bad. The neglect is also um, an issue because he's coming to school and he's not showering and he's wearing dirty clothing and kids are making fun of him. He ends up having dyslexia. The kids at school don't like him. They call him creepy. So he's having a hard time in school, even though he's in an abusive household they decide because he's obviously pretty depressed to send him to therapy his therapist starts sexually abusing him no can this kid catch a fucking break it's no good it's no good so danny stops going to therapy a year after it's begun and he is arguably much worse off for having been um so already he's a teenager and he starts the crime circuit he breaks into people's homes it gives him sort of a weird high i guess right he would also sort of add pranks to the mix which normally i'm all for but because i know where this story goes i basically i see i see it through shit colored glasses totally and it ruins uh my usual delight in such pranks what i mean by pranks is he would like when he would break into people's houses, he would try to make them go a little crazy. So he'd like hide their stuff, move their stuff, move their for just like rearrange a room's furniture, right. that kind of thing. Right. Which feel harmless in, if, unless you're also just robbing them and taking right. their life savings, which he is, to be clear. So in 1986, okay. he has broken into somebody's home and he's figured out their phone number. 
He's left the home and now he calls it. It's a family that lives there. Brian Andrews is the dad and he lives there with his two daughters, 15-year-old Annie and 8-year-old Jessica. They're having a really hard time right now. Brian's wife, the girl's mom, has just died of cancer. Oh. Brian's working all the time because he's the sole support to these girls, but he's also sad because he's not at home for them as much as he would like. Totally. Danny figures out who lives in the house that he broke into and that it's these girls, and he gets into Annie, the 15-year-old, because they're, like, the same age. Oh, he's young. He's a kid. He's a kid, yeah. I didn't know he was a kid. Why did I... I think because I'm still in my story that I feel like he was a full-blown adult. No, no, no. He's, He's He's a teenager. So... He has a crush on her. He starts to call the house and ask for her. And Annie assumes that a mutual friend of theirs somehow gave him the number. And she's kind of excited about getting called, right? And they start speaking um, kind of regularly, having a few calls that week. And he describes himself as athletic and good-looking and blonde and... Is she, he any of those things? No, he <laughs> you has acne, enough where it was, oh, and he's he's a, a teen. Got dark hair, and he's right. not tall. He's a te- he's what it, most teenagers look like. Right. I'm not putting him down um, yet, and so to be clear, she likes talking to him. It, you know what? It's like an early version of Love Is Blind, and Blind. she's like, I would marry him, uh, except she's like, I will go on a date with you when he asks. <gasps> They meet up for the date, and she's like, huh, tall, nope, athletic, Mm-mm. no, 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 not there, blonde, no, no, not there. I don't get his end game with that, because I'm like... What does anyone's end game with that, though? To, like, with, agree, if you, like, agree, because at that with point... With catfishing someone? Yeah. What's the point? Oh, by the way, anecdotally, you know I went to school with that guy, Nev, that started the catfish thing? Yeah? Yeah. He dated my roommate. Funny. Yeah, so he'd always good come guy. over to uh, Slonim 9, which is where Larry Ray then later lived. And good guy, can't say, have no opinion. I can tell you that I didn't really <laughs> know him at all, and that he'd always go, hey, Quinn. And that was like the whole, that was our whole was relationship. It. She's a nice girl, Annie. So she isn't like, doesn't say anything mean Your right away. Goodbye. No, she's, she's like, like, all right, we'll go on this date. And she, they go on this date together, and they're walking around a fair, I guess. And she isn't having a nice time. Mm, He's like asking about her family and she tells him what's going on. And when he hears about her mom dying of cancer, he starts to ask a lot of questions about that. And he gets kind of animated and is sort of like, oh, did she suffer a lot? Like he's like, what a weird... I don't know. He just seems kind of... Basically, if someone says they lost a parent, you say, I'm so sorry. How are you doing? You don't ask about, like... You don't really ask those questions. It makes her really uncomfortable. Yeah. She's like, okay, thanks. I think I have to go home now. And I think the date ends early. And she's like, that'll do. <sighs> so, a few days later, she and her sister are hanging out at home. They're talking about their mom. And they start to remember things that happened when she was alive. You know, they miss her. Of course. And they're like, let's have a seance. 
let's try to talk to mom. Let's have a seance. And they go to their basement and they have this seance and nothing crazy happens. But, you know, they're kids and they miss their mom. So I don't think uh, it really comes from left field necessarily. But it's time to go to bed. They go to bed. They fall asleep and they start hearing a weird tapping sound in the walls. And they're like, mom, you know? Yeah. But the next few days, the tapping sound keeps happening. And what's weird about it is they'll only hear the tapping sound when they're alone in the house, when their dad's not around. And then they start to notice that when they go into certain rooms of the house, things seem to have been moved or missing. So like they'll be eating a snack, they'll leave the room, they'll come back in an hour later and the snack's totally gone. I know what's happening and I'm so mad about it actually. They tell their dad, they're like, this is happening and he's like, doesn't take it seriously. They're mm-hmm. like, do you think it's mom? And he's like, no. <sighs> that would be a really hard position to be in. I feel, f- I like really feel totally. for that dad. Flash forward a few days and they hear tapping again. It sounds like it's coming from below them and they get freaked out. Annie gets a knife, and they're like, let's go to the basement and check it out. They go down into the basement, and on the wall, in what looks like blood, is written, I'm in your room. Come and find me. They fucking scream and run the fuck away to the neighbor's house and are like, holy shit, can you believe this happened? Their dad gets home and is like, oh, man, my girls are really having a hard time. Like, he definitely thinks it's them. He definitely thinks they're having a hard time because they miss their mom and they're acting out and they're doing weird stuff because he's not around and they want his attention. And it's just like, this is a weird coping mechanism that my daughters are doing. Two weeks later, though, the girls are home alone again and tap, tap, tippity tap. Okay? They grab the knife. They head towards the tapping, which seems to be coming from Annie's room. And on her wall is another fucking weird ass message that says, I'm back. Find me if you can. I should be clear. There was only one A in the word back. I said, I'm back. It's not, it wasn't like A, A, A. It was, I'm back. Find me if you can. Same routine ensues. Screaming, freaking out, running to the neighbor's. Good for these girls, though. I'm proud of them for getting the fuck out of the house. Get the fuck away, yeah. Yeah, curiosity killed the cat, so be careful. Again, they call dad, and he totally has the same vibe of, like, shit, they're making it up. He comes home, and when he walks in, the TV is on full volume, blasting. And there's another message. This one's really weird if the dad thinks they're making it up. And this one's really weird if... It's meant to be mom talking to them because this one says, marry me. Exclamation point. Marry me. <laughs> that's how you read exclamation points, right? In blood, but like how, how, okay, now that's a fun exclamation, but imagine in blood, what would that read? Marry me. <laughs> Couldn't do a question, that's to be an exclamation. Marry me. <laughs> marry me. Marry me. So, 
now Brian's like, the dad was like, what? And just as he's starting to walk around and wonder what the fuck's going on, he sees a young man in the house, an intruder, wearing makeup, wearing a wig, wearing a dress. Not just any dress, a dress that belonged to to the girl's mother, to Brian's wife. And he's holding a hatchet. And he comes at him with a fucking hatchet. No! Calm down. He gets away. There's like some sort of scuffle or fight that ensues. Brian beats it, gets the police there. But when they get there, this kid is gone. And they start searching the house. And behind Annie's drawers in her room, they find a fucking small door that leads to a crawl space and the crawl space sort of weaves through the house between the walls and there's peepholes so that he's been looking he's been living in their walls or hanging out in their walls looking through peepholes at them while they're in their home it is the scariest thing I've ever heard in oh my, uh, my life oh wait my Oh, really? He was only doing it for two months. (gasps) I know. Unbelievable. They arrest him. He's 16 years old. Oh, my God. He goes to juvie. But it's 1987, and they're like, we're going to try you in adult court. The bummer about that decision is that because they're going to try him as an adult, he's eligible to get uh, released on bail. And he does. Mm-hmm. And while he's out, he breaks into somebody's house, steals their guns, and he walks into the home of the Gustafson family. It's Gustafson? a young Yes. He walks into the home of the Gustafson family. It's a young couple, Priscilla, who's a nursery school teacher and is pregnant. Her husband Andrew, seven year old daughter. And five-year-old son. When he breaks in, the only people home are Priscilla, the pregnant mom, and the five-year-old son. And he rapes and shoots the mom. And he drowns William in a bathtub. Abigail's seven, and she walks home from school. And she gets home, and he drowns her too. No! Andrew gets home. He's gone. And Andrew finds his family. He finds his wife, I should be clear, and before looking any further, he's so scared he'll find the rest of his family, he calls the police, and they find the rest of his family, and he's lost his entire family, Andrew has. Truly the saddest thing you could imagine in the world for this man. They find semen in the bed, footprints in the garden, there's a bunch of clues left behind, Daniel is, of course, a suspect right away, and they question him the next day. He's like, no, I wasn't there. I was at a birthday party. I was watching TV. Um, They go to question him further, and when they come to his house, he runs. So they're like, well, that doesn't look great. So they search the area near his house, and they find hidden in the woods by his house a bunch of stuff that connects him to the crime. They find gloves. They find a shirt. They go into his house and they find a 22 caliber bullet casing, which was the gun that was used on Priscilla. 
they find shoes in his house that match those footprints they found back at yeah. Oh my god. They find a sock that has Priscilla's saliva on it. They find homemade ligatures. They find all kinds of things. It's I mean, it, the list goes on and on and on and on. There's no doubt that he's the, the There's no guy. doubt at all. He runs away and abducts a woman at gunpoint and says, "Drive me away." She's driving a Volkswagen van. She gets away from him. And he keeps driving her van. But wow. somehow she escapes. She calls the police, tells them this this guy took my car and had me at gunpoint. They find him hiding in a dumpster outside Townsend. Wow. They arrest him. He is laughing hysterically the entire time. Oh, sick man. Totally. He's now 18 years old, and he pleads not guilty to all three murder charges. How? How? I mean, and they're like, is he mentally sound to stand trial? He is. They're like, he's totally mentally sound, but he shows no remorse. So it's a fast turnaround. He's found guilty. Five hours deliberation. He gets three life sentences, and they're like, you're going to serve it consecutively. So he's currently incarcerated at Norfolk Prison in Norfolk, Massachusetts. Norfolk. What did I say? Nerf? Norfolk. Like Nerf. Isn't N-O-R-F-O-L-K? Norfolk. I'm so worried I'll say fuck that I I really focus on the first part of the... You're like, Norfolk. Your fuck is Norfolk. All from Massachusetts, especially get the fuck out of here. Norfolk. I can't do this. God damn it. I have one job. In 93, he appeals his conviction. No dice. In 2013, he says, I'm not being allowed to properly exercise my faith while I'm in prison because he's become Wiccan and he really needs all these ritual oils and he needs dragon's blood and black opium and honeysuckle to do his like stuff. And he also needs carrot cake, I read. I don't know that many Wiccans. I don't know that many Wiccans. And I, listen, I, I don't want to bring them up, you know, but... You guys I, using carrot cake for stuff? No judgment. I, no judgment. Carrot fact, cake's delicious. Fact, sign me up, because in the Catholic Mass, you get stale-ass wafers. But, like... I'm at styrofoam packing peanut wafers. Yeah, it just seems like a real sneaky way to go about getting some carrot cake. I hate this guy. So, in 2017, he's now 46... He appeals Gosh, again to a get baby. a... Re- he was a he was, child. He was 16. No, he was 18. No, he was, he was 16. Person. Well... A, what I'm saying is he was a teenager when these crimes were committed. He's a... And now he's... Yeah. So in 2017, he's 46. i no mathematician, but I believe that makes him 50. He tries to get a reduced sentence, and that's because the Supreme Court ruled that juveniles can't be sentenced to life in prison without parole. The judge says... This case does not involve a single act that resulted in three deaths. Mr. LaPlante committed three distinct and brutal murders. He killed a 33-year-old pregnant mother and a five- and seven-year-old child. He left a family and community devastated. The court finds that the maximum penalty is warranted. Mm -hmm. As for Andrew, poor fucking Andrew, he says that he doesn't think about Daniel often and he doesn't think he can ever forgive him. He says, as far as I've come, I don't think I've come far enough to deal with that. I've still got more miles to go in my journey. 
he his journey ended actually in 2014 he died of cancer he was 60 years old and on his deathbed he said don't ever let him out he should rot in prison yeah and i think we can all get on board with that andrew yeah, those are last wishes I would respect. And that's the story of Danny LaPlante. Ugh. Sorry to be such a bummer. It is no, a really no, sad story. It's, it's a horrible story, and I think what's so sad is, like, it wasn't, like, the guy just wanted to create devastation. You know, I think that's what's interesting is, like, affecting those two little girls who just lost their mother and, like, then doing that to a horrible, like, that, that killing a whole family. It's, like, the, the justification... There is none, but like the reasonings behind both our stories today are so vastly different. But like, uh, the amount of just like violence and pain and destruction people want to impose on other people, it's just like it's very weird that we both did two complete monsters this week and both kid killers mm-hmm. and both like kids that were abused and then turned into abusers, themselves. murderers, yeah. not abusers. Well, they were abusers and murderers. I mean, both, but yeah, I mean. It's so hard when you do these cases because you want there to be some light at the end of the tunnel, some lesson learned. And I really think like all you end up taking away from it is there are monsters in this world. And so, and so try to watch things that make you feel warm, you know, give Kimmy Schmidt a try. It's really fun one. Oh, you know what I'm watching? That's great that you would love. Ted Lasso. I've already seen it. Oh, that seems up your alley. Ted Lasso, if you want something just fun, I think I told you about Ted Lasso. And what I love about it. It's just so happy. It's like not. But it's like with the antidote to toxic masculinity. It's yes. like, look at this man that is a hero and he doesn't Optimistic do anything just like, shitty. But he's, he's still a good flawed, guy. which I like. Like, I, he, he's not mm-hmm. that flawed, but I think. Is he though? He's perfect, I think. He really is. I What I like about that show is like. This is really nice. Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like it's a lemonade on a hot day, that show. Yeah. It's just like, this is what I wanted. Just like positivity and kindness and a little comedy. Yeah. Yeah. So please, if, please watch Ted Lasso if you need. After this episode, by God, please go watch Ted Lasso. We need some, like, joy and love in your lives. And also... If not, like, if you need, do you. All I'm saying is maybe, like, the Dementors or whatever, get some chocolate. Feel I mean, I, you know, I think everybody needs to watch something after. That's what I do. You know what I watched? I, I had a breakup with a boyfriend from college, like, in the summer or something. And I just wanted to feel happy. And so I put on Elf in the middle of the summer. And I was like, yeah, this is what I wanted. Like, that was, like, a balm for me. That was, like, comforting. Like, oh, I know it. It's not a thinker. It's just a fun, good time. Christmas, throw in those vibes. Totally. It's funny because somebody was suggesting to me when I'm doing, like, a dark uh, topic on the podcast, like, oh, then you can go play with the kids after and feel, like, that brightness. And I'm like, especially not when it's about killing kids. Because then all I think about while I'm playing with them is, like, that somebody killed someone their age. Like, I obsess over, like, a kid like you or two years older than you or one year younger than you or whatever. 
And I'm literally just staring at them with like tears running down my face. And Cole was like, what's wrong, mama? And I'm like, nothing. Nothing. You don't ever have to know anything. I, when I would do like plays that were particularly heavy hitting subjects, like subjects like I did on How I Learned to Drive in college. Yeah. And after every show, I would come home and I think I would put on Sex in the City or um, 30 Rock. And I would just have that on in the background because it was like fun, stupid, not thinker, like just give me positive vibes. That's how I felt. That's what I needed. I get that. Let's go watch them. What? I don't know anything. You want to go watch them? Let's watch Ted Lasso. No, we're not going to watch it. We just finished the season. Do you have any other, what would it be another good thing to watch? I like what we do in the shadows. You didn't love that. That's my favorite. made me laugh so hard. It makes me do this. Huh. There's a new one. Also, I think out. we're done with vampires for the day. Like I think we've <laughs> I've had my fill. <laughs> There's a new one coming out that's a sequel that's um called um something paranormal and the premise of it is it's like a small town police uh, office precinct in Australia and they're dealing with like paranormal activity and being just like dopey police officers dealing with paranormal. It's like a mockumentary. I'd watch that. Yeah, sure, I'll sign up for I'll that. I'll sign up for that. Um, I did just watch Flight of the Concords. Do you love it? This is fun. This is Jermaine Clements and Brett, you know, what's his last name? Brit. 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 He's so hot. Jermaine. Oh, my favorite is um, Murray, the agent. <laughs> I do like Murray. He's my favorite character. Well, I think you need to have more rock style. <laughs> hold a bit. I don't like bit. Just hold a bit. <laughs> Look at you, your image. That accent. Do they have a leg up because they're funnier because they have that accent, right? I don't know how to do that accent. Did I sound like I was doing it not terribly? New Zealand listeners? New Zealand readers? No, 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 no. I'm so sorry. We'll cut that. We got some Kiwis out there. No, 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 no. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I mean, good people. Good people. Those Kiwis. Good people. I gotta go. This is a dark yeah. one. This is, you can't, I don't know. I can't get I feel out like of it. it. Yeah, I'm watching you, you see try me to recover. Trying to like, I feel like I'm in a straitjacket of emotion and you're seeing me like really trying to, and I've lost the key and my shoulder's not dislocating and you're watching me like struggle to get out of this. Carrie Houdini. Carrie Houdini. I'm trying to get out of this straitjacket of emotion. It's not working. Let's get out of here. Bye. Bye.